Something told me it was over, babe. When I saw you and that girl talking, babe. Something deep down in my soul said, go on and cry, girl. When I saw you and that same girl walking by, oh, yeah. and I would rather, I would rather be a blind girl. Then to see you walk away, walk away from me, baby. Oh, yeah. Cause you see, I love you so much. I don't wanna watch you leave me, babe. And another thing is, I just don't wanna be free, no, man. And we have returned to the Whitney after taking a brief, brief break to go outside and catch ourselves a snack at the uh, carrot salad truck. How was? Why is there a carrot salad truck? Why is that a food here in New York? Do you have any idea, Harry? I mean, is is it the Ray Pete thing that everybody's doing? Oh, it's the Ray Pete thing. Shit. Anyway, is that keto? Uh, I mean, it's not not keto, but it's just carrot. It's just fucking carrot salad with some oils on it that are apparently coconut oil. I don't know. It's From what not- I understand, it's um, well, two things. It's supposed to like bleach, not bleach. It's supposed to like bleach like your rid, asshole. It's supposed to bleach your asshole, and it's supposed to like rid your body of toxins or something. But then the other part of it, though, too, is like it's also like Mormon appropriation because Barrett um, has famously said that this is like a Mormon meal that that Mormons love their carrot salads, and that you know basically um, we have these health freaks who are taking it over. Um, but it rightfully belongs to the Mormon people. Well, before the Mormons love their carrot salads and other people who love their carrot salads are Russians. And boy, if there's one thing that Russians and Mormons are equally renowned for, it's their cuisine, right? Oh, yeah. We definitely <laughs> exactly. want to pick up on the Mormon and Russian cuisine. Exactly. The, well, the slop okay. diet. Yeah, just like, yeah, the slop diet. Um it wasn't too bad. I mean, you know, you take what you can get when when you're at a museum, um, and we needed to replenish ourselves because while we sampled many delights, including the Garden of Civil Rights delights or the Garden of Sunny delights, um, at, at the at the Whitney Permanent Collection, we are now making our way down, down, down. We are going way down. I mean, we're going down to a little place called the fifth floor. And on the fifth floor, there is an event taking place 
uh, the event that has drawn us to the Whitney Museum on this summer afternoon. And it is called the Biennial. The Biennial. And it is not clear to me at first whether that's twice a year or once every two years or every two years it's but it is once every two years and the and the lady in the giant elevator did correct me and i asked her i remember asking the lady in the giant elevator and she corrected me and we had this little exchange this little repartee bantered a little bit and so it is once every two years but it has not occurred for three years which really throws a wrench into the once every two years theory it's a bit of a twist since it hasn't been three years it's been three years since the last one yeah, it's a triennial officially, actually. That has to be now. They have to just roll yeah. with the plague at this point. Mm-hmm. So, so after, you know, after engaging with the abstract expressions, the funky pop, pop arts, the um, modernist meditations of Edward Hopper, and especially his idealistic depictions of the perkiness of his 78-year-old wife's bugsum. Um, after, I believe, being replenished and being, uh, being uplifted by many of these works, not all of them, but many of them, we have to make our way down and we have to p- pass through the gauntlet, the gauntlet, of our peers, the gauntlet of contemporary art, the gauntlet of whatever it is that has animated the Whitney Biennial 2022, which is called Quiet As It's Kept. Quiet As It's Kept. Which is similar in cadence to Easy As She Goes or or Steady As She Goes or something like that. It's like a there's a certain quaintness to this expression, which is meant to mask the extremely banal uh, contemporaneity, uh, contem- well, contemporaneity, I don't know how to use the word, I don't know what I'm saying, the extremely banal nowness of the works on display. Um, now to the point of yesterday, they're like so now that they're already five years behind the times, um, as now inevitably always is, because as we know, People think they're being hip and with it when they do politicized art, but uh, you know what's what's it is no longer hip, and what they're with, or what whatever, however Abe Simpson put it, uh, what's what's <laughs> what they're with is no longer hip, and what's hip is strange and frightening to them. Um, let's get started, shall we? First of all. Since we are retracing our steps and forging the masterpiece to be better than it was initially, have you, Harry Tafoya, my guest once again, um, have you processed in any way what we experienced in the summer as we revisit it now? Uh, have, have you had any kind of, you know, have your thoughts aged towards something? Um, they haven't really changed significantly. I mean, I guess the thing to say up front is what the show's kind of aspiring to do um i'm looking at the curatorial statement right now and um it has kind of all the buzzwords that you associate with 
the Whitney. It has um, nods to like racial struggle. It has nods to um, the trials and tribulations of the pandemic, of a kind of unity and um, trying to play into and also complicate the idea of being American. Um, but we all know that these things are completely meaningless um, on their own and in, in isolation. And I think with a memory now of these works and a memory of kind of experiencing these things all together, um, you know, I feel like it was a very um, out of touch show, not because it was particularly tone deaf, but because there was nothing connecting the art world to anything that America has been about as of recently. You know, those two things are very separate countries and realms to engage with. Um, and one is just absolutely not touching the other. <laughs> um, which is funny because like the whole purpose of the Whitney Biennial, you know, the Biennial is a very kind of short turnaround for um, a kind of major show. So you would expect in that two-year time period for like, I don't know, some kind of statement. Um, and the Whitney kind of exists basically um, to be a very present tense museum that is kind of really dedicated to showing what America is about right now. I think it's kind of funny that, you know, the permanent collection taps out at 1970, basically, um, and then kind of leaves a dot, dot, dot for you to kind of go down and explore what the other floors are about. Um, in this case, however, like, um, what America is about is a big old question mark. Can you read the, uh, is it the, is it the statement up above the, up, up above here, this very short statement? Um, or is there something a little bit more elaborate by, but can you read it for us? It's the, a bit long. Oh, it's, it's a bit long. long. Um, yeah. But since the start of the pandemic, time has expanded, contracted, suspended and blurred often dizzying succession. We began playing this biennial in late 2019 before COVID and its reeling effects, before the uprisings demanding racial justice, before the widespread questioning of institutions and their structures, before the 2020 presidential election. And it kind of goes on from there. Rather than offering a unified theme, we pursue a series of hunches throughout the exhibition. That abstraction demonstrates a tremendous capacity to create, share, and sometimes withhold meaning. That research-driven conceptual art can combine the lushness of ideas and materiality. The personal narrative sifted through political, literary, and pop cultures can address larger social frameworks. The artworks can complicate the meaning of American by addressing the country's physical and psychological boundaries, and that our present moment can be reimagined by engaging with under-recognized artistic models and artists we have lost. So it's... Yabada, 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 yabada. I mean, the... the I don't know. The, the, the takeaway I got from that is like, um, we're, we're doing a lot. And this statement is going to, supposed to be the band-aid that kind of makes it all make sense, which uh, that was not the experience. But like actually going to the galleries and being like, yeah, this, this sure all makes sense together. Um, it did not. It was very fragmented and scattered and didn't give me a hint about anything, really. It didn't give a hint of anything. And I think just to, um, like... Um, uh, you know, like, okay, the most seemingly 
the most like screamingly obvious connection to the pandemic that I see and that I that we saw. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to go by these kind of in the order of the impressions that that one remembers, because there were some good, there were some perky surprises, I would say. Um, and, you know, we did have some fun. We did not have fun necessarily at the uh, Andrew Roberts exhibit, but it is Andrew Roberts is born in Tijuana. And he lives in Mexico City in Tijuana. That's weird for a man named Andrew Roberts. But anywho, um, Andrew Roberts embraces the zombie as an allegorical figure and as a stand-in for the artist who situates himself, quote, as a Latino and queer person confronted by a crossfire geopolitical war where bodies and identities similar to mine are treated as disposable, end quote. Is that a geopolitical war? That were anyway. Um, as Roberts has explained, quote, after NAFTA came to fruition, recycled products spawned by the US entertainment industry crossed down to us in the form of low-resolution television reruns and cheaper pre-owned video game consoles, all while Tijuana rose as the main pathway for the distribution of illegal arms and drugs. This atmosphere had an everlasting effect on my childhood memories, where cartoons began to mix with the brutality shown daily on the news. And computer shooting games became indistinguishable from my own reality. Um, he's born in 1995, which means this he's young. He's very young. He's, he's younger like, than me. He's younger than you. And you're a young man. I mean, I almost feel guilty talking to you. I mean, I almost feel like yeah. I'm committing a crime by even, you know, the trouble I mean, with I, Harry. I, 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 I'm feeling tremendously groomed right now. Yeah, I've been grooming you so hard and so long. And that's the trouble with Harry is that you can't really talk to him without grooming him in some manner. Um, Baby, I'm, I, I'm ungroomable. So this so-called Mexican artist, Andrew Roberts, <laughs> is, he is Mexican. I mean, he may be Mexican, but is he really? I mean, is yes. he like... Okay, I haven't seen a picture. No, but but I mean, like like you know, I'm I'm also queer and Latino, so I could also say that. Oh, right, well, I forgot. So am I. Um, he's lying in this statement. Uh, he's yeah, he's lying, and he's starting his career off with a lie, or he's starting his introduction to to him to me off with lies, pure lies. He's lying that he doesn't like television reruns. He's lying that he was in some way um, disoriented by computer shooting games and by TV reruns and, and the like. And he's lying that he felt, you know, bullets flying over his head, even though in Tijuana, I'm sure, you know, they at least metaphorically, they were um, at a certain at a certain point from a certain point on. But there's a lot of just, and then he's lying about NAFTA being a meaningful thing in his life. He's a Zoomer. Yeah. He doesn't know what NAFTA is. He cannot spell it out for you if he tried. You know, like he does not know what NAFTA stands for, even though it's not a very complicated acronym. It is just all lies. And it begins with the fact that he situates himself as a Latino and queer person confronted by a crossfire geopolitical war, as if being a Latino and non queer person. Ought, ought to affect any of that it doesn't the queer is just thrown in there as a fucking resume signifier lies yeah. mendacity no, I, I el mendacito go ahead um 
Well, I mean, I, I think that's true. Like, I, I just think that all of that is true. Um, you know, this is, and I don't think that like, it's a particularly unique lie either. I think that this is kind of the like, entry, like, like the price of entry for the art world. Um, and he's using what he has available to him, which is, um, you know, being from Mexico and looking at video games, but then like, um, you know, I guess the kind of big problem that comes in here at least is like, you know, having to problematize all these aspects, you know, like, like, like he's, um, he's, he's a conceptual artist. So he has to problematize all these uh, aspects of his upbringing that I, you know, don't amount to much as an artistic statement, you know, like, you read that text and then you look at what he has to offer in the museum itself. And it's like these two things so don't sync up with each other. And then on top of it, it's like, you know, I, yeah, he, he's a, um, you know, th this all makes a very tidy logic. There's a very tidy logic to this all. It's just that it's kind of obscuring anything that feels human. Like nobody has a, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine that that NAFTA was like a single disorienting, um, you know. Bullshit. You know, it's, it's like, it's it's like, like the all, biggest bullshit. All, all, all shit, you know, like, like resonates from like this one big bang of it's like, no, that didn't happen. I feel I feel like I'm sitting at around a table with with my queer Latino friend and he's. And, and, you know, someone's asking, you know, hey, what happened at the club last night with such and such drama? And he just says something and I'm just like, you're lying. You're, you're lying. lying. You're a lying gay liar. You're you're causing drama. It's like this is like a drag race, uh, whatever, untucked, some like, you know, round table, something. And he's just saying vicious lies, vicious lies. And here's the very first work that they display, which is worse than the one that I recall from the uh, the the thing this is worse this is the worst of this is the worst thing you could ever possibly display um as a work of art and claim it to be a work of art and it's called cargo a certain doom 2020 it's a severed forearm in hand with can you guess can somebody guess what's on this hand because i bet you you can guess <laughs> i bet you you can guess what is tattooed uh, uh, along this forearm to make it a work of art. Would it, would it happen to be the Amazon smile logo? It indeed. How did you know? Are you, are you cheating? It's the fucking Amazon logo on a, on a severed forearm and cargo, a certain doom. So cargo is obviously a reference to, you know, trafficking, whatever cartels, schmartel. What does that have to do with amazon.com other than the most, childish you know symbolism of capitalism or whatever free trade amazon.com amazon.com exists so that you don't have to buy something from a mexican cartel like it would just appear at your door um so this is the his well, kind of I mean, signature here that makes sense because it's like it's about like the ease with which products are fluid and the sources get removed like i understand the logic of this it's just that it's heavy-handed and beating no pun intended 
well, it's, it's, it's like beating you over the head with some like Amazon workers severed arm. Um, yeah. I mean, but the whole I, I point mean, of Amazon is the, yeah, I mean, the whole thing that links up this statement to what the art actually is. There's nothing. And I mean, I look at this, I'm like, okay, it's a reference to um, Paul Tech. Paul Tech was a 80s gay artist um, who also did like silicon severed arms. So, you know, like if I'm, if I'm being like a cynical art person, I'd be like, oh my God, he's making a political commentary and referencing art history all at the same time. Right you know, like, like, like through this one artist, you could see so many different like points checked off. I'm going to draw the conclusion that this guy likes to get fisted and that that is the only <laughs> redeeming quality to this particular work of art. It is a manifestation of a fetish that he is too embarrassed to own up to uh, flagrantly uh, or blatantly. And I, that, 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 that's the only redeeming quality here because it is a nice forearm. It, it's a nice forearm. Like it's, it's not too muscular. It's not steroid circuit queen forearm. It's a good beginner's forearm for getting fisted. Yeah, it's a perfect fisting forearm. It it will it would like I can see. I mean, the hand is big, but it's not comically big. The hand is a working man's hand, you know, but young, but still like twenty eight, like, um, you know, a little bit swollen, swollen, but that would add comfort and cushion to the fist. And then once the fist is in, the rest of it sort of I can see it, you know, sliding deeper and deeper because it's not that gargantuan and and it's somewhat somewhat looks somewhat soft so i understand i understand if that's what he was trying to convey through this absolutely um you know just confused this heavy hand as you said i mean it is as heavy-handed as it could possibly get on all levels and the signature well, too, like, sorry. yeah go ahead no go ahead oh, well i mean like there's also like this complete remove I, I mean, like in context, it also makes no sense as well. Like this um, is kind of breathtaking for like, why are you bringing up the plight of Amazon workers in a building that is probably, I don't know, 40 million tickets. I'm, I'm pulling that number out of my ass, but like, like tens of millions of dollars constructing this building among other artists who I know for a fact sell in the millions um, for individual pieces, like, I don't know, it, it, maybe it's, um, I don't know, it, it, it's the context thing here, too, and does this guy have anything to do with Amazon in his own life? Like, there's no, the, the gesture is, like, so confused on all levels, I don't really know what we're supposed to be confronting by, like, looking at Amazon workers' abstract pain. There's, like, no, I don't know, there's no ground for any of this. It's all free-floating signifiers for people to be like oh my god that's so true um but then if you kind of examine it under scrutiny like there's like no grounds for any of this to feel true it's it's yeah it's just it's it's like it, it's exactly it's sort of this um trick which it's the kind of it's like the trick where you you are not kind of like oh you say it's true or you get him to say it's it's like it's, it's like a sale you know it's like you're trying to do a sales thing you're getting somebody to to agree early so that everything from then on is just 
icing on the cake, you know, and like they've already agreed. They've already you've 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 got them past. You've had them thinking past the sale. Initially, they they already said it's true way too early before they've had a chance to process it. So now from then on, there's no need for too many probing questions. They've already agreed that it's true. They've already agreed that you've accomplished your task. I mean, it's it's like it's very like Twitter, you know, like it has like the same thing where it's like you find yourself in a particular neighborhood um, and you kind of orient yourself um, to a certain kind of take economy. And then from that position, um, all other positions seemingly make sense. Um, and there, And there's like a logic that kind of follows that like, you know, whatever kind of random flare up, it's going to, you're, you're going to approach the exact same way every single time. Um, it creates an orthodoxy rather than like challenging an orthodoxy. Yeah, it is. An, it is. It does create an orthodoxy and it's a very minimal orthodoxy. I mean, it's a very tiny, just like a, it's, it's it just as a, as, as the size of a tweet is, is, is minimal and seldom has there ever been even, you know, I am a, I am a fan of the tradition of the aphorism, but seldom are there tweets where the kind of there are manifold riches contained in the 280 characters, you know. The best tweets are usually just funny kind of run-on sentences typically that aren't actually like aphorisms that are more like that are more like uh excerpted offhand remarks. Um I've noticed it's far more far more effective on in the tweet form than the perfectly curated little sentence which always seems a little too try hard in that format for some reason um uh you know anytime you anytime you kind of see people making an argument fully fleshed out with like three line spaces in a tweet it just it just feels like a powerpoint presentation a, um, a, a good tweet is like a a flower petal thrown into the void. You know, you're picking your flowers, you're throwing them off from your lived experience or some shit. But I mean, like the other thing too is like this is an orthodoxy that like is so dominant. Like, why does this particular orthodoxy need? Like, why do we need to repeat it? I could well, get this from like anywhere online. Well, um, this is controlled opposition. This is not an ortho. This is this is not this is not heterodoxy. This is. Like he's he is a he is an orthodox he's a member of the orthodox church it's, of it's homodoxy because it's all the same and it's all gay. Yeah, it's all gay. Um, it's all Latino and it's all queer. Um, <laughs> and so I guess he's serving his purpose in that re- regard. Um, very 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 depressing that this is the sort of thing that anybody anybody considers worth uh, promoting it really is it's well, like it's one of those horrible horrible things with, with zero redeeming value well, but even like on the identitarian level it's like i i am also gay and also latino like i it and how but 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 like but like you know if you're to look at that and point like, like what is the gay part and what's the latino part it's like there's nothing fucking nothing nothing about it's gay nothing about it's particularly latino you know what's gay and latino Universal Horror Nights, where I just went, <laughs> where I just took Jack Mason and and friends, and we had the most wonderful time. And it was it was ninety percent, if not more. It was first of all sold out, so it's packed. So it's Love a it. packed night at Universal Studios. Packed. We got there a little early, so we got we were there during the daytime too. But it was a and it was beautiful because they have like a whole Simpsons area and the Harry Potter area and all this stuff. And, and 
it's just packed with Latinos Beautiful. on dates, Latinos on dates. And it was the most wonderful thing. And you can see because they're Latinos, you can sort of see them all stretched out before you like a, like a sea, like a NAFTA, like the waves of NAFTA rolling of rolling across your border. And it was just marvelous. It was like being in the 1950s or something, um, you know, LA and they're all Latin. I don't know why 90% of amusement parks are populated by Latinos in LA. I mean, the city itself is almost 90% Latino, but but there, it's even higher representation in amusement parks because Latinos are, because I guess <laughs> they're they're queer in a certain way, they like to spend their money and have fun and and just have fun. And they're there at this fucking thing. And it was wonderful. And that to me, and, and they're, these are products. These are fucking universal. This is universal. This is, this is the logos. This is the fucking, uh, you know, each of these haunt, these haunts are branded according to a certain horror movie. There's Halloween, there's the clowns. There was one by the weekend curated by the weekend of all, of all fucking things. Um, there's, there, there's all, they're all kind of, you know, curated according to a certain horror brand. And, and also there's the normal universal rides that are all brands such as the Simpsons and Jurassic Park and what have you. And it's all happiness and smiles and people eating crusty burgers. Mm -hmm. That's what it real. that's what it actually, that's what, that's what his little thing actually is. That's what being Latino and queer and capitalism and NAFTA actually is. It's people going to the touristy most, the, the only people going here are Latinos, the only, and a lot of queer Latinos too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also too, it's like, like that totally fucks up the orthodoxy where it's like actually people can actually, you know, find quite a degree of happiness and joy in, you know, in these experiences entirely mediated by brands. So, um, what, what are you, what, what's the complaint? Like, like, I don't know, you either have to be more specific or like not be such an extremist. Like, like what, you know, you, you either get more specific and get more like doc, you know, doctrinaire, um, which is unpleasant and nobody wants to be around it. Or you kind of like throw your hands and be like, yeah, that's nice. I, I you know, it's a very human thing to like want to go out and hang out and, um, nothing is pure, um, under capitalism. So I don't know. I, I'm not going to, um, you know, make my livelihood as a, um, as a skull at the Whitney Biennial, you know, chopping, you know, exhibiting the kind of chopped off limbs of the casualties, um, that are the victims of capitalism as opposed to like, you know, probably what you are, this particular artist, I don't know what this person's deal is, um, which is the client and person who enjoys it all. Right. And the, 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 the piece that we, you know, the most, the mo the, the one that sticks out like a sore thumb at the actual biennial, which I don't see actually photographed here online is the one with, there's like four screens. One of them's Disney. One of them's Apple. One of them's Netflix. One of them's Amazon. And there's That's some, huh? That's him still. That's him. Yeah. yeah. That's an, and the, and I guess this is where his zombie identification comes into play. I didn't even realize when I brought up universal horror nights that he identifies as a zombie yeah. in his own artistic statement. He identifies as a zombie. Zombies aren't real. 
Zombies are an invention of Jewish filmmakers, okay, mainly, so in Hollywood. So, um, you know, essentially. So his own identification is drawn from the very thing that he he sort of claims to be oppressed by, which I don't think he's even self-aware of that fact. Uh, he's even aware of that fact. You know Do what? You? That, that's, that, that, that's only half true because George Romero is uh, not only half Jewish, he's also half Latino. He's, his family is from Cuba. So look at that. We got, um, we got the, we got the <laughs> Latino Jewish, um, I don't know, zomb- zombie axis right there. Yeah, for real. What was the question? <laughs> I don't remember, but I was just saying that, okay, I see the zombie, you know, he's like installed zombies in these screens with the Disney logo, the Netflix and the Amazon. No particular meaning to any of them, except that, you know, I think maybe that they're supposed to reflect the viewer. I have no idea. Um, and, you know, I want to be, when I saw this in the, the- I mean, when I saw this in the biennial without having any idea who the artist was um you know i was not like i was not disposed and instantly disposed to dislike it because i and as you know many of us have been bemoaning the ways in which during this pandemic specifically all of american culture has been confined to watching streaming services and how shitty those streaming services became and you know kind of the the whole the 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 generally depressing fact that life became being married to a email job woman who just is content to eat take out you know order DoorDash and watch her stories on about serial killers and rape uh, or imagined rape not real rape not good fun rape but um, uh, at home oh. and on the couch so I got I was like pre- I, all I'm saying is I was disposed to connecting to some sort of artistic critique of this cultural moment right none of that is present in this picture that i've sent you uh in these on these screens they're just kind of like dia de los muertos imagery uh with a logo on it am i missing something um that's not dia de los muertos imagery it's just like very basic zombie imagery yeah i mean i'm I'm using that in a in like a it's you know Okay, okay. Yeah, like a broader um, sense. Yeah. I mean it's I, I I think it's trying to tap into what you're saying. Right. I I think it's trying to manifest that idea. I personally just think it's so heavy-handed that I can't look at that as anything more than like a Twitter post. Yeah. Like, there's like no difference to me like calling people zombies who rely on or or or, or the opposite where it's like, you know. Um, these people are foregoing their humanity and are functioning um, undead uh-huh. <laughs> because of how worked to the bone they are. But either way, that has like all like the depth of like a Twitter tweet, of, of, of like a tweet, you know, like there's not a ton of like, you can't really go much deeper than that. I don't know, because like like everything that you just said is like, that is a situation that has um, so much roiling humanity underneath it, right? It's like I felt genuinely useless and hopeless at multiple points throughout the pandemic. Um, and I don't know. I, I never did I kind of lapse into uh, <laughs> um, 
I don't know, into in, into something this simple. Like, like you know, like like art that like would communicate some of that would be very useful. But that doesn't this doesn't touch that at all. And you know what I just thought might have communicated something like that. Just that I th just thought of it right now. Sure. That could have been displayed at something like this. What if you just did a painting, or you know, painting, whatever, however you want to call, it, whatever you want to call it, but let's call it a painting of the set of married with children, and you know, your classic living room, the classic living room couch of married with children, and the set, and on that couch are, and this could even be photographic, but like the, the on that couch is Al Bundy with his fingers tucked into his pants, his trousers. Next to him is Peg, and on both of, on, on, on both sides is are the kids, um, Bud and what's her name? I forget the, the girl's Kelly. name. Hmm? Kelly, Kelly, right? Kelly, yeah. And, they're, and, and it, it occurred to me that you never do see them, because Married with Children is a dystopian show masquerading as a sitcom and and but it's a very dystopian show like I, I the more i think about it the more i am impressed with how it is the only show i can really think of in that format that where the all the endings are bad they are it's always a tragic ending it's usually the plot line is usually the plot line is either something you know something's bad and it gets worse comically worse 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 and worse or something is bad it gets better there's great hope and then the the final the climax is ultimately that no it, the hope is dashed and it's down to smithereens like failure that's the that's the arc of there's no happy endings to those episodes and imagine if you will two years or one year or a year and a half depending they're in chicago so however long those lockdowns lasted of the four of them that family the bundys being forced by law to sit at the same couch and watch the same shows every night after night after night after night because you never see them sitting on that same couch together typically they're usually just well kelly's running off to a date with some hot guy being slutty bud is sneaking out on something you know peg and al are sort of you know at, at loggerheads and he's trying to get the hell out and go to the titty bar they're never Kelly, at the same couch. Kelly together. has an OnlyFans. Um, <laughs> we know that she has an OnlyFans, which, has, yeah, yeah, 100%. The other one has an opioid addiction. Bud has an opioid addiction, and we know in one of the episodes, Bud has accidentally subscribed to Kelly's OnlyFans, you mm -hmm. know, in a fit of, of being high, and he's super embarrassed by that and everything. Uh, but I, t I could totally see that. I mean, you know, as much as I could totally see. And, and, you know, you can, whatever, artistically uh, uh, morph their faces into whatever they might seem by month seven of this particular scenario. But and, and you would be making a reference to American pop culture and yada, 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 and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, you should you should make that piece. Would it make the biennial, biennial 2024? <laughs> if I identify as a queer Latino from Armenia... <laughs> who has been well, I mean, Armenia Armenia is Latino. So can I can I identify as someone who has been I mean I'm I'm not of course from Armenia, but if I but if I were from Armenia, can I identify as someone who has been oppressed by the lack 
of a free trade agreement between the West and Armenia, which is really which has created such a landlocked and and uh, uh, you know luxury deprived country and poor country because we know that free trade agreements actually increase the flow of things rather than rather than create all the suppression that that uh, this this uh, this uh, zoomer is pretending to have been so so um, uh, hammered by. What do you think? Do you think they'll go for that, or is that going to tip my hand? <laughs> I mean, I I agree with I don't know. Yeah, you're yeah yeah. I mean I mean just just like add an X to Armenian Armenianics and you're, Armenian you're, X, and you're yeah. in basically. I mean, but you know his argument is that free trade turns you turns your country into Disneyland, but then there's no country there. It's just the zombies. So what's what's the point of even bringing that up in the first place? You know, it, it's just like it, there's like no depth. There's like no ground to orient this thing. It goes down like a fart. It's just like it's just like un, I, I don't like it. It's not good. There's another really crazy one too. Um, I think it was on the upper part, the sixth floor. Um, it's this artist called Daniel Joseph Martinez who had these. Um, he had like the kind of alien, like the ripped alien guy from Prometheus, and he had like a bunch of kind of like combination vampire, werewolf, Frankenstein-looking characters. Yeah, but, I see him. I see it right now. I'm looking at. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, um, and I was like, oh, well, this looks cool and interesting and exciting, but you know, this is the other kind of. Um, th- this is in like that same kind of vein where like I read what the art was doing because it wasn't, you know, the, the, the work wasn't just those images, which on their own would have looked kind of cool. Um, he had like a, um, a fourth panel that was entirely a critique mm. of, of all these images. Um, mm-hmm. I can't find what it, I can't find like I what it actually says. Well, I, they're, they're showing some of it here in the, on the page. Three critiques with an asterisk number three, the post-human manifesto for the future on the origin of species or E equals HVO positive. We are here to hold humans accountable for crimes against humanity or in the twilight of the empire in the spider hole where the masters of the earth have gone to ground with their simulacral, their simulacral weapons Reality gives way to a violent technological phantasmagoria, celestial event, or Homo sapiens are the ultimate invasive species on the earth, or modernism, all caps, has failed us, the empire, all caps, is collapsing, humans are morally, all caps, indefensible, or a world between what we know and what we fear or doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is an absurd one, or hominis... Corruptissimi condemnement quod non intelligent. I tried to do my Latin right there. Yeah, he went Latin at the end. This is this is why Roseanne on Ambien had to get canceled, but this has to be fucking uh, 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 glorified at at a Whitney biennial. I mean, I think it's a troll. Whoa, I hope so. I think it's a troll. Um, it's just that he's making a mess. And I mean, this is more redeemable than the other one. But like, it's it's the same kind of thing where it's like, what does it amount to at the end? It's like, 
I'm, I'm grateful that you have like these cool things to look at of like that Prometheus guy and the Frankenstein or whatever, but like, Oh God, it, it just like, it, it, it's, it, it's just kind of poof. It's like, pfft. who gives a fuck? It's so hard to care. Radical performative experiment of becoming post-human and the evolution of a new species. Okay. Well, Welbeck, Welbeck got one there 30 years ago. Um, the post. Dinema Tu Maloof. Ooh, it sounds familiar, but I don't have a like he's, image. He's, he's cool. He's um, he's he's pals with Anna and, and and that whole crew. But like, he forever ago did like these paintings that were very similar to this. Actually, where like it was like a mashup of like, um, I don't know of of like Pete Buttigieg, um, and also like German paintings from the 1700s um and he had like these qr codes where like if you like press play it would like do complete nonsense gobbledygook um you know things like this but his was funny his was um <laughs> his was um i don't know pointed in certain ways it was like f- i don't know fun this is just kind of a bummer it's not even like a fun mess, this thing. This should be more of a fun mess. It's it's too um the you know, the thought I had was that it was a little bit too HD when we saw it. You know, it, it's it's arresting because the images are arresting. And I guess the model, well, whatever, I don't know. It it it's like super high res, the 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 images. Um so it really does feel like you know, you're looking at a still from the the next big kind of sci-fi show or movie blockbuster thing like that's what it look feels like it, or a video game you're looking at a super realized video game character like the guy here in the very first one um i guess this is the artist himself inhabiting yeah it says martinez uses his own body to interrogate and to bear witness to the extraordinary moment in human history our own self-destruction so it's self-portraits of him as Frankenstein, as Dracula, uh, from specific movies, as Frankenstein from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein 94, as Count Dracula from Nosferatu the Vampire 79, as the engineer from the film Prometheus 2012, an alien bounty hunter from the TV series The X-Files, and drone host from Westworld. So he's like, these are the his series. He's, he's occupying these... Um, blockbuster characters i guess so that makes sense but it doesn't seem like his occupation of them is it's it's i, I mean sorry go ahead no I, I i i'm just waiting for you know oh well i mean like it, it doesn't feel total you know like 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 it it is okay to like just fully embrace these things um, rather than having this kind of distancing mechanism of like using total, you know, because he's making a joke of the kind of theoretical text that that Andrew Roberts guy is using, you know, like he's he's being silly with this, right? Um, but it can't compare with a work that you and I both like, which is the Alex de Corte video, which is wholehearted in its embrace of like all of this kind of shit, right? Like it's it's wholehearted in its embrace of um children's television shows and 
horror movies and whatever the fuck was playing at the time. I mean, th- that was the one with the uh, um, cartoon Muppet woman singing the lip syncing to Etta James. Yeah, there was like a Gumby type of Back cartoon band. band. Yeah. Gumby figure types. And Muppets. Yeah. And yeah, Muppets and stuff. And there's a band and it's and it's sort of this, you know, very yeah, I mean it's a, it's a, I I I'm I'm somebody who often uses the word lynchian. So, um it's a lynchian type of kind of contained weird little stop get stop you stop motion. Yeah, I mean it's it's it makes you think and it and it does it's it's perf- it's all first of all it's all, and it's all done it's first of all it's all, it's kind of it's high effort not low effort because it's a well it's a well shot concert video of these little creatures lip syncing and there's a lot of extreme close ups which are which I caught you know we caught a picture of um the extreme close up the eyes are puppetry huh yeah good puppetry good puppetry for sure and personally um personal to me this was playing on a loop in in the you know main area sixth or fifth floor fifth floor i think and, yeah and this was something where i was you know i stopped and watched and i wanted to watch the whole thing because i i'm a huge Etta james person i've seen her perform five times and and they're they each have memorable associations to me the first one was at uc santa barbara my freshman year the second one was at the house of blues r.i.p on on sunset boulevard um which no longer exists, but that was, and that was the best one because it was tight. You know, it's a tight venue. She was absolutely rocking. She had her nephew come out and they both sang rock me baby as a duet, which was hot. And we were all, but my friends and I were buzzing uh, for days after that show. I mean, I drove back that night. It was a Sunday night. You know, she was, she started by saying, y'all went to church and came straight here. And everyone was like, woo, woo, woo. And one of her, her staples, she never sent, does a con, never did a concert without singing, uh, without singing. I'd rather go blind, which is a song that she wrote, but then put under her husband's then husband's or boyfriend's name at the time. So as to avoid taxes. And he ended up collecting all the money for it for him ever. It was one of the biggest hits. Um, and she would sing it every time in a very long, drown-out way where, where with some beautiful lines in it, by the way. Um, and and she would really perform it and get really, like, graphic as she was trying to describing her memories of his warm embrace and his, 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 his. And she'd look down at the crotch and, you know, hmm. wiggle it around. And she and his, 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 his. Um, and... And, you know, very in the way she, I, when I saw the lips, when I saw the tear, when I, when I held my glass to my lips and saw the tears strolling down from my face, that's when I knew that, da, 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 da. very nice, very, very like, like messy song. And they have this, you know, these characters perform the entire live, not the, not the, you know, much crisper uh, recorded version, but the uh, studio version, but the live version. Um, like, that's pretty cool. So I was into this. And so were other people. People were sitting down watching this thing front to back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, like, I I think that, I mean, to your point, like, it's so well observed. It's so, 
lush. It, it's such a combination of things that clearly interest this artist. Um, I, I have a problem with him sometimes because appreciation can kind of get, how do I put this? Um, vampiric? Not vampiric, but kind of mood boardy, you know, like it doesn't really yeah. have much consequence. Um, but, you know, it was, I guess the difference between this and um, Daniel Martinez, though, is like Daniel Martinez is somebody who is putting quite a bit of work into making these images and posing for them and constructing them, but he isn't really embracing it with his arms, like, like, like all around. He has a distancing mechanism with like this kind of like silly um, <laughs> critical theory text that goes with it. It's not really felt the same way. Oh my God, there's blenders that are being blended. Ooh. Oh God. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, like it's not, the embrace isn't total the same way. You know, this is somebody on the other hand, like the Alex de Corte piece, it's like, he knows what he's making and he identifies it with, he, he identifies with it clearly. As, repeat what you, uh, uh, I was about to write this down, but I couldn't find a pen. You were saying that appreciation can get dot, dot, dot. When I said mood vampir- boardy, mood boardy, that's right. Yeah. Mood boardy. Or it could feel a little bit um, inconsequential, let's say, you know, I, I mean, because we all appreciate things. Absolutely. Yeah, we all appreciate things and we can sit down and appreciate them from now to the end of time. But that doesn't mean we're creating something new just by sitting down and appreciating However, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, nevertheless, appreciation. I don't think there's any way. You know, I don't want to say there's no way, but it doesn't seem like there's any way other there, there's any shortcut around appreciation to creating something new, at least in the world as it is today, because so much has been created today that if you don't appreciate anything in the current abundance, not just current, but just in the stage of where we are as a species, there's an abundance of greatness that has been created. And if you don't appreciate any of it or appreciate it enough, it's hard to imagine that you have what it takes to create something yourself. True or false? I think that's absolutely true. Okay. I mean, I've never seen... um, uh, (laughs) <laughs> an in-depth, involved, multi-dimensional work based on cynicism. I don't think it's possible to create a work like that. Right. You can create a kind of passing, flash-in-the-pan sort of thing based on cynicism, but... There's no longevity there. I mean, yeah. how deep can your dislike of something, or not even dislike, um, distance... You know, your, your, your remove can only kind of sustain itself for so long, whereas like, you know, uh, appreciation can deepen and have new dimensions to it because it goes through time, because it goes through people change, people, you know, find new meanings. But cynicism, it's predetermined. It's, it's um, I don't know. It's not total. I, 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 yeah. I don't know it's a very, talking. cynicism is a, you know, it's such a weird thing because in, in certain senses, cynicism is almost, is almost indispensable to having intelligence. Um, and I think that's where people get really trapped, especially people who are influenced by 
uh, or who grew up in an atmosphere of Generation X. Um, and it's not just Generation X, but they're sort of our living, they're sort of the living embodiment generation of cynicism and of the of the traps of cynicism, ultimately, because there is truth to being cynical about things. Now, we like cynicism is is essentially just to be let's just define it because we hear the word so often and correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in my understanding of cynicism is that it's a distrust of the face value of everything. Is that, is that an accurate de definition? Um, yeah. Cause I could look it up, but I don't want to. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually did just look it up. <laughs> okay, good. No, you should um, look it up. I just wanted to see if I could like, you know, I, I wanted to see if I wasn't being an no, idiot. I, about I, it. I think that's a good working definition of it. Cause I don't and, know. Like, yeah. And, 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 and to, as I said, you know, that is like, it is indispensable to intelligence to uh, the, to, to not, you know, not take things at face value necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, and always keep in mind that the human, that, that the human being is a constantly, um, a constantly sort of revolving door of motivations and, uh, self-deceptions and deceptions. And people don't even know when they're being honest half the time. And, uh, we don't even know ourselves and we don't know other people and all this. It's all very you know, I think the word, the, the contrast to cynicism that is frequently preached is skepticism. Skepticism is like the healthy version of cynicism, which is that you don't gratuitously deny what people are saying just out of this philosophical conviction that everyone's full of shit. Because everyone's not full of shit. I mean, everyone is full of some shit. We all have our bullshit. And I think that when it comes to art specifically, you know, anytime I hear somebody, uh, anytime I hear somebody express a distaste for say Leonard Cohen or David Lynch or the kinds of artists like those two who really kind of wear it on the sleeve. Um, they really wear their, their quest for elegance, for beauty, uh, for truth. They, they wear it on the sleeve. They don't hide it. Um, to, they, they, and, and therefore they strike a lot of people as over the top and they strike a lot of people as chasers, uh, as, as Anna just called Lynch, a, a cool chaser, like a chaser of the cool, um, Anna Hachin that is. And, and, you know, I think that for, I, I think that ultimately every single artist that you love is an artist that you love in spite, uh, is an artist whom, whom you forgive or even love them all the more for his bullshit. Like you have to love the bullshit to love the artist because you are, it's, it's like, you know, we're just, uh, we are all uh, like uh, all art is like 95% bullshit, which reveals some very particular truth. Like it's all a bunch of bullshit that's dressed, dressed. It's, it's like, it's dressed up with all the truth. All truth is dressed up with all this, you know, fancy layers of bullshit, but the bullshit is necessary to get to the truth. Otherwise you just don't get out. You don't, you can't get out of bed. 
Like you just can't get out of bed without bullshit. You need you need to literally sometimes you need to literally have to have take a shit to get out of bed. I, that was me this morning. I was dead this morning. Oh I could God. not get out of bed. I was like dead just from you know the weekend's cumulative whatever. So bad for your bad for your constipation knocking down the door. Yeah, if not for. <laughs> No, I mean, and that was my old problem, but this was different. This was because I had whiskey or whatever the night before to sleep. I had a certain, you know, itching in my tummy. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I would have like slept forever. I would have literally slept so forever. Gross. I woke up. Huh? So gross. Oh, sorry. But whatever I'm saying is I had to get out. I was literally prodded out of bed by bullshit. So, um, well, I mean, know. like, I think, you know, I, I think, um, I think sincerity, it's, how do I put this? Um, I think that David Lynch and Leonard Cohen are easy targets because I think that, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm going to give another example though, which is the art world, right? It's a place that is invites so much skepticism. It's a place that invites so much um, critique because like it is on multiple concentric palimpsest levels of pure bullshit um an unworkable place that you know thrives on certain toxic dynamics nonetheless you know i think that um with a healthy degree of skepticism for that bullshit you can nonetheless find particular value in the metaphors of the work of people who are engaging with it in a sincere way. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's, you know, it, it, it operates on both levels of like people who are inclined to, um, you know, be unforgiving for people's weakness, which is human. But on the other level too, it's like, you know, the world is perpetuating cynicism at a rate which, you know, you could feel it everywhere. Like there's so much cynicism in everything, but it's still worthwhile to be open and engaged and um, to tease out metaphors from the stuff still, um, you know, and I, I, I don't know. I, ho- I hope I could, I, I could kind of in, in, in some small sense with my writing and, you know, you as well with your podcasting, like, you know, we're committed to carving out some framework for possible enjoyment and against this dynamic that is chafing at the root of so much of everything. Yeah, and that's why I I dragged you along to the Whitney in 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 New York on this very specific day, um, which was you know I, as I've I, as I've no surprise to anyone. I have the I have an immensely I have a lot of cynicism when it comes to to the fine art world of today, and I mean, I didn't want to go to it. Honestly, you didn't want to go yet. It's impossible not to feel cynical about the the, the art world of today because it's given us too much to be. It's 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 abused our trust way too much. It is simply this is the problem in general. I think with all the arts uh, today, fine art, you know, high level arts, literature, uh, you know, serious literature, serious everything way too much abuse of of trust which once was granted like trust was once granted the art world um 
it's 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 like you know if you, all you have to do is go back you know the, the 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 earliest the nearest to hand example would be if you simply hop over to behind the iron curtain before it fell and you just one reason why artists were so were such fucking suckers for communism is because of how and so what high esteem communism communist countries held their artists however propagandistic the art is not the point the point is that the art the craft itself the endeavor itself was granted a very high status, which in a way is like a throwback to the high status it it held, you know, I think of a bit earlier in um, in Western societies. Like you have to go back probably to the seven, I don't know, 60s. When did high, when's the last decade that the masses of people could be depend could be relied upon to to support and to appreciate and to enjoy fine art? 50s, 60s, 70s, I'm not sure. Um, it's not that long ago, but it's simply not the case anymore. I mean, there used to be a time when the opera would be, there were operas that were flourishing around, you know, middle-class society, uh, middle-class places all over the Midwest, all over the, all over America. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I, um, I think the reason why uh, leftism initially scanned as something that was uh, quite attractive to me was um, this sense of articulating value, right? Because there's no inherent value to art whatsoever, um, which makes it, you know, on the one hand, like the ultimate money laundering tool in the world. Yeah. You know, there's no value to this painting except for all the speculation behind it. Um, and there is a way in which, because the value for art has gotten so abstract and there's no kind of firm basis to articulate beauty from. And um, <laughs> we have to pretend that all these kind of statements are equal somehow, that all kind of forms of beauty are also equal. You know, to, to be the person who kind of insists on standards, it's not a particularly fun role. It's an oppositional role to you know, putting distinctions between what is and what is not good. Um, you know, I think that it's tough because, you know, there's, it actually goes against the profit margin for all culture, basically, at this point to uh, insist that art be good because it's far easier to, appeal to people's like most base, um, you know, drives basically, you know, that you can um, have like on-demand porn or like, you know, or, you know, um, I don't know. I, I feel like really easy art that kind of goes down as an ideological statement is like porn, porn of like, you know, it, it, it's its own kind of pornography, right? Um, it's there. You just like warm it up and get off to it. But um, I don't know. It's 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 a very kind of tough dynamic, and I feel like trust is going to erode if it hasn't already in all art, across all art forms because um, you know there's no resistance to I don't know. There's no appeal to a higher value on the one hand, and there's no appeal to um, standards 
through which we could kind of agree that all this stuff is good. You know, like the Soviets had, it's not that Soviets, but like, um, you know, they had standards still about what was and wasn't good. I think they were kind of simplistic standards, but like those are standards nonetheless. Um, there were standards for the abstract expressionists. Um, the kind of total relativism of all of it is kind of, and I don't mean to sound like I kind of like um, am on the same tip as like those people who like post like Marcel Duchamp's toilet with like some like really shitty Roman sculpture and be like, oh God, what have we lost? But like, you know, a certain amount of like insisting why things are valuable um, <laughs> and what is garbage uh, could be nice for the culture and would probably lead to better art across the board. Speaking of base instincts, Buck Ellison. Oh yeah, that's really caught our attention. <laughs> yeah, and he was apparently we apparently just missed him. Uh, we apparently we just missed, missed the, the model. The model Eric Prince. Well, Eric it's, Prince is Betsy DeVos's brother. Oh no, no kidding! So so. That series by Bucca Ellison is um, trying to recreate basically what Eric Prince was like as a young man before he founded Blackwater. So it's like, I don't know, super, super intensely researched trying to create like these, um, I don't know, coming of age of uh, <laughs> this, uh, I don't know, mercenary kind of guy. He, yeah, very coming of age. Um, C-U-M-M-I-N-G. Yeah, it says like, um, is, uh, Eric Prince, Ellison said, is often touted in, me, in the media as a war criminal, as a political shadow figure, as a monster, especially following Blackwater's massacre of 17 Iraqi civilians in 2007. I'm interested in what happens when a viewer is forced to get close to a snake in the grass. If a camera allows us to desire or to be curious or to feel empathy towards a figure like this. Here's the answer, Buck. It does. It does yeah. allow us to desire a figure like this. Everyone is looking at this really image. It made me really horny for him. Huh? It made me really horny for him. It made you really horny he for succeeded. him. It succeeded. So art wins in the form of taking a pornographic picture of a really hot guy in a ranch in 2003 and oh we're supposed to be turned off by the fact that he created a security firm that killed iraqi civilians in 2007 i mean, I mean you know i mean it's not his fault without the, i mean without like the conceptual part like it would be redeemable as good art just on the basis of like it's a hot guy it's like, it would be like a bruce weber kind of thing um i think the I don't know, attempted empathy, I think, makes it something a little bit more, maybe. That stab at trying to, like, identify with this person. Yeah, it does. I mean, it does. It's more challenging. Good. You're right. I mean, there is empathy to this. There is, um, there is a, um, you know, he's depicted in this one image that we see here. I don't know if that's the only one, I guess, that they have online. 
he's at the little whatever kind of like at a cabinet I mean at a on a kind of leaning on a workshop type against a wall looking he's smiling with very he's smiling with little with with no tra- I don't know I don't see any traces of malice in this smile pearly um, whites huh pearly whites pearly whites I mean of course he's shirtless and that helps us but even if he had, he was shirted it's it's a it's an innocent youthful smile and this is like a boy at his workshop um you know building something um there's horses on the wall and stuff and there's no sense that this is an evil man and so in a way this is the most provocative work in the entire biennial because he's literally saying hey look this guy that you on paper consider to be the scum of the earth not only turns you on but also is disarming he's not turning you on in the bad you know bad boy like he's not like holding a gun you know turning you on in a in a in an evil sort of way he's he's simply turning you back into a schoolgirl with a boy with a boy crush mm-hmm. would that describe yeah. you this momentary <laughs> yeah, defoya sure does describe me and describes... I mean, that, that's a more difficult proposition than I don't know, most of the other art that I saw. It is more difficult because I mean, it's easy in the sense that he's hot. So there's like a lot to work with. Oh, I mean, because well, it works on both levels, right? It's like, oh, wow, how satisfying that I get to look at this hot guy. Um, but then I also know who he is and it's kind of the bait and switch. Yeah, I guess my for me, it's a little bit it's a little bit less of a challenge because I don't care about the whole <laughs> war criminal thing. <laughs> oh, it doesn't you don't need to it doesn't even need to work on that level. Yeah. If you don't want it to. Yeah, it's it's enough of a I mean I I thought it was like just some like Instagram porn star who was being pornographically I didn't realize this whole thing that it was I didn't realize this whole backstory until just now. <laughs> I didn't I realize mean, he's he he's a genuinely conceptual photographer, Buck Ellison. I mean, he does have like these elaborate conceits for taking the photographs that he does. Um, but I mean, you could take or leave it, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's up to you if you want to like engage with it at that level or not. But I think that regardless, though, like he does have something to show for it by grace of it being a good image and a satisfying image. Cody, Wyoming, set in 2003, the year I graduated high school. Um, just reading the uh, transcript of the interview. It's, um, it's, a, it's a bait and switch, um, B-A-T-E and switch. Yeah. Yeah, bait and switch, indeed. Yes. A bait and bait. A bait and bait. A bait and bait, baby. Good stuff. Well, we could just stare at it for the next few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, you should probably just like have like ten minutes of room tone right here. <laughs> yeah, with possible with, with possible uh, possible uh, uh, like you know rubbing sounds <laughs> in the background. Bop, bop, bop. And 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 weirdly altered breath patterns. Um, and and just like. Squirt, squirt, squirt. I don't know. 
well, you know, if that's your, if that's how, if that's your method, some of us yeah. just sort of just so just some of us just sort of uh, you know they go inward with it, and it's called in in it's called injaculation, uh, where you just <laughs> you just retain you somehow you manage to ex- retain what you expel all the more or something. I don't know some tantric bullshit. Um, um I don't know why anybody wants my, to retain my guys any part on of keto and. My guys on keto and semen retention. Yes, yeah, <laughs> retention. Well, you know, I have to get the carbs from something. Um, <laughs> so, a lot of protein. Yeah. Um, it's free, too. That's the best part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm trying I mean, to see. You know, subscribing to, subscribing to Kelly Bundy's OnlyFans isn't free, but no. know, staring at buckles and photographs is. As you ejaculate, yeah. As you ejaculate. <laughs> Is there anything else in this fucking apocalypse hole, as we called it? There was a, there was a, there was a magazine. There was a. There were, there were like some a, things I liked. Yeah. Let, what do you? Let's let's talk about what you like because, as we said, this was an this was a project of you know as as is as my entire podcast is a project of defeating cynicism and of as uh, as of carving out these these um carving out these uh, apps apple pie slices of meaning joy laughter uh investigation um and uh, excitement that it happened to exist in life and for me existed mainly during the pandemic in in the conversations I was having with my closest friends um mm. both in private and in public um I mean p- private when there was literally nowhere to go and public when there was anywhere to go we would just sit down at an outdoor restaurant and I would just we would just go off on all the shit that was that had been simmering uh, um and and not only the shit that had been simmering, which we were simmering for everyone with a, with a, two brain cells to rub together, but also there it was a time of bef- even before you know even before the podcast was a gleam in the eye, and even before Twitter was a gleam in the eye, like before I was even active on Twitter at all. I I, I was born, huh? Before he was even born. Before it was even born, in that in the womb of the pandemic. I mean, in the, in the, in just in the womb, we would also revisit everything that ever had an influence on us and that we, and, and, and which influence we had long ago stifled or or, you know, just brushed aside and moved on, moved past from, never thought about it seriously since like all the way back, um, all of it, the, the, everything from Ayn Rand to detect to the, to Agatha Christie, to like all the little things, to the sports fixations, all the little, all the, we, we did the opposite of putting away childish things. We dusted them off and we brought them out and we decided to find their place in the puzzle. Um, Mm. and so that's, so that's the, so, you know, it was, it was a definitely an atmosphere of like, all hands on deck. Everything that ever happened matters. Everything that we ever, ever were shaped by for any length of time, or you know, to the extent that we can remember it today, matters. It is whether we like it or not. There's no way around it. There's no denying it. You're trapped. You're trapped in your own. You're trapped in your own. Um, not trapped isn't is the wrong word because it gets people depressed when they have like 
stupid, when they have like traumatic incidents that they're trapped by, they don't have to be trapped by their traumatic incidents, obviously. Um, they can choose not to be trapped by their traumatic incidents and they can choose to, to, to edit that, that text. But like, if you, if you don't have such horror, um, there's no reason to be ashamed of the things that once delighted you. Like there's no, there's no, there's reason to be, there's reason to handle the things that once fucked you up, but there's no reason to be horrified by the things that once delighted you. And I think a lot of people are, a lot of people are very, very, uh, anxious about what they were once into and made happy by. And I think it's, it's, it's like, you know, finding the, finding the windows of grace in a windowless room um, is sometimes the only way to lighten, you know, get that Eric, Ho that Eric, that, er that Ed, Ho that Hopper uh, uh, sunshade into your, into your frame, you know? So, sure. yeah. So even in this fucking apocalypse hole, there are things that do bring joy. What are they? Um, let's go through the list. Um, God, I, I hope I didn't oversell it. Like, what was that? I hope I didn't oversell it. <laughs> There's nothing that brings <laughs> joy at all. <laughs> no, I mean, like, like there, there was good art there, um, that I did quite like. Um, I was personally a fan. I love Charles Ray. I think his sculptures are really fantastic. Um, Woody De Othello is another artist I really, really like. He um, had the really kind of gloopy ceramics that were right next to the Alex de Corte piece. Um, they, um, I mean, I mean, they were meant to be kind of like what he had on hand during the pandemic, basically, like his like workbench and all that kind of stuff. Um, Ralph Lemon, really good artist. Um, I liked Matt Connors. I liked the video piece by Na Mira. Um, I thought that was a really cool installation and a riff on um, another artist in the show, uh, who I'm going to bring up in a second. I thought Cy Gavin and Adam Gordon's pieces were really good. Um, I usually like their work anyway, so that's good. Um, and then the last one that I really liked quite a bit was uh, Teresa Hak Chung Cha, who, who is uh, no longer with us. But I thought she was a. I liked her. Um, I liked her her install that they had for her. It is a good thing we lost the audio of what I did with that with her name because we know that I did something with her name that was very inappropriate. Uh, something vile with her name. I was really inappropriate <laughs> with her name, with Hak Chung Cha's name. And I will not repeat that in, in the forgery. <laughs> but I'm trying to see if there's anything. I, mean, I, I just, go. She's a great artist. I really like her work. I'm trying to see what it is here that that we can maybe perhaps celebrate for a moment. And I am um, struggling to find. Um, where the fuck is it? Uh, what? I'm lost now where I don't see the catalog anymore. Or I don't see like the artist's. Uh, fuck. Anyway. Is there something that, that you see that you can specifically... Fucking artists. Okay, here he goes. Okay. Chun Chan. Oh, there it is. Teresa Hawk. Okay, so she's South Korea. She's... These are severe... This permutations is what I see. 1976. 
and it's a is this an image of a Korean girl? Her. That's her. Oh, okay, cool. And yeah. she's like, looks like she's in a TV box. Yeah, it's a, um, I believe it's a series of videos. Series ah. of videos and also kind of writing experience experiments. Um, so she herself was a writer as well. Um, and I liked it because it's, I don't know. It's it's the kind of theory that I I do like where you are um I don't know, taking on your knowledge that you have and kind of making a mess with it. Um so her it was it was like lots of like her doing language experiments. Um which I liked. I mean, that's the thing that I I, I personally respond to and think is fun and good. Um cerebral Perhaps, but whatever. Fuck it. <laughs> made me happy. If it made you happy, she had a I'm very a... um. What? She has a book called Dick T, nineteen eighty two. Yeah. Well, if it made, I like cerebral things that make you happy. You know, I really like that. I like cerebral things, because mm-hmm. I'm a cerebral person who barely has any emotions. When I do have an emotion, it's like a fucking. You know, it's like a. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, what's the what's the cliche when, like, you know, knock me over with a feather type of thing? Because you're, I'm just oh, like yeah. two sheets to the wind when I'm, when when the emotion every with every emotion I ever feel, I get like three this, of them I mean, per year. This in, this entire podcast is a kind of extended mediation on how tops have feelings. Yeah, too. Yeah, despite all the all, yeah, exactly. Yeah, tops exactly. have feelings too. Tops have feelings, and and you heard it from both of us here first, bitches. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's time for us to be seen and heard, um, not just felt in the ass. <laughs> Sick and tired of all this marginalization of the. Yeah, exactly. Um, that we have to endure. So yeah, she and then and there was this one kind of very um in a sense podcasty ex- uh, installment as well which was of a magazine i think it was called like let me see i, I think I, I saw it here um oh i did want to ask you okay before we, yeah i want i did, did let's go to the magazine a gathering of the tribes i think by steve cannon is oh, this i had the- no idea what that was i was like looking that over and was like i, I guess it's a magazine it looks <laughs> it, it was involved terrible it was just yeah so it's like a you know it's like two walls with a bunch of shit collaged all over the walls and like a you know like a there's like a book there are like two short bookshelves along the long wall there's some little tvs and just a bunch of like text it's a bunch of like pages of a magazine pasted to this these walls and i guess it's supposed to be a magazine and um i have a question for you though Mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, when, when we first did the Eve Babbitts episode, you know, we were talking about the idea of what value a podcast still has. And one of the values that we decided was um, it's the magazine function, right? It's you're presenting a new set of references, a new spin on how to kind of engage with stuff. I like the idea in the abstract, even if I didn't really spend much time with this fucking exhibit of like, what if a magazine was an installation, you know? Mm-hmm. That sounds like brain and cerebral, but like, you know, in the abstract, I don't hate it. 
I don't either. I, I actually, when when it was told to me that this was a magazine by whatever we read at the time when we were there, when it was uncovered that this is what they were going for, I was like, oh, well, that idea is not anathema to me, um, of course, because I love, ma- I've always loved magazines. I've, I adore magazines. I've, I wanted to write for magazines initially. Like that was my first, that was my first before even books, I wanted to write before anything. When I wanted to be a writer, it was to write for magazines. I like the way they smell. I like the way they're sold. I like newsstands. I like, I liked the idea of like, you know, 5,000 word, 10,000 word essays. I, 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 I've, I uh, plundered my father's Playboy collection, which has some really good ones from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and of course, 90s. Um, and I literally plundered them for the articles. Not a joke. And I have, I still have them all right here. In fact, I, 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 I even recorded, I tried to do, and I might continue this idea of like reading through a Playboy, like going through it for by myself for the podcast, you know? Um, experiencing a Playboy, an issue of Playboy magazine. I love the concept of him. I like. I love the way that everything in a mag in a in the classic lifestyle literary magazine, such as Playboy, such as Esquire, uh, all, and you know, also the intellectual ones, the more the Jewishy ones. Um, I love the way all of these things sit together in a magazine. I love the way that. Giant pair of tits and a bush and Norman Mailer are side by side in a magazine and, and, <laughs> you know, and a beer ad. This and all it, makes sense. It all works. It's so romantic to me. It's so, it's such a perfect cultural artifact because it has every single element of a culture in it, except, you know, music. Like it's the only thing that it doesn't have is, but it has music reviews and it has that, which, 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 which of course evokes music if it's a good review so it has everything really um if it's a good magazine it has ads it has commerce it has some commerce it has some pulp it has some thick you know it has everything comedy serious there's nothing (laughs) it's some pulp it has some fiction it has some fiction a little oh look there's a story by uh hey look uh uh uh, haruki murakami has written a story um uh, or you know in the case of the old one that's john updike always because since he never didn't write a 10,000 word story in a, in a living day of his life um, that appeared somewhere. And I just love, I don't know. I, I mean, it used, I also love the fact that it used to pay so much money. Like when you hear about what people used to make oh from writing God, for magazines, yeah. it turns you into a pile of mush. When you hear about how much money writers used to make writing for magazines all the way up until basically the, you know, two thousands. Um, oh. Don't remind it, me. It's, it, so it's it's the most depressing thing for people like us to be <laughs> to contemplate because I mean, it was you, like you, you you don't even need to tell me because I I, I don't even I, I do the um I do the bitch work of uh, of pitching to these um disasters now and it's like so demoralizing it's like oh god please give me some pennies for like this <laughs> it's for be- this piece that um, may or may not run <sighs> that you're probably gonna hate out of pocket. It's so my really Roman existence. Yeah, I think the most I ever got paid for a piece, as they say, was uh, was a thousand dollars, and nice. and it was and yeah, and that was I think that was my I, if I'm not mistaken, I think I got that for my 
review of an Otto Preminger biography for Commentary Magazine way back in 2008. What, what is the ideological affiliation, might I ask? Commentary Magazine, neoconservative. It's like, it's, it actually used to be one of the, it used to be leftist. And it, it, it's one of the classics from the 1960s New York intellectual is it, Jewish. Poderitz? Yeah, Poderitz's magazine. Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah. actually it's a real throwback, but it became you know neoconservative, and it has a back of the book where it's still you know it still has interest, it still publishes some writers that I admire. Um, well, to this, I mean, but this, this only this only reaffirms my theory though, which is that conservatives pay better than. Oh than yeah, yeah, yeah. Do. I mean, at least that that was a you know they at least that one does. I mean, I'd gotten the most I'd gotten from the Weekly Standard was seven fifty, um, and. Yeah, not bad, but but you know, I did spend a lot of time on these things. Now, the 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 most depressing amount I've ever received was for my cover story for Washington City Paper, also in two thousand and eight, which was a cover story of like four thousand five hundred words, where I, re- where I literally went. And it was huh? It's a long article. Yeah, it was it was an investigation of all the college newspapers of the area, where and I roast basically roasted them each mm. and it was it was a lot of fun but it was a 4500 word thing for which i received four hundred dollars <laughs> yeah Damn, so, that's, that's a and that was my big highlight from dc <laughs> God. um but but yeah when you hear about the amount of money that these fucking magazine writers it just added to the glamour of it for me like oh my god these people are getting a dollar a word or sometimes more like in crazy um sometimes way more um there's a woman um who works at the new york times i think she's at the new york times i think she might have left actually um and they did a profile of her it was like a big profile that people on media twitter were talking about and it was like and the reason why they were talking about it was because uh she revealed her rate per word and it wasn't one dollars it wasn't two dollars it wasn't three dollars it was four dollars per word Four dollars per word. Oh, I like Homer Simpson. <laughs> like insane. Just the idea that you could just track, and then and then you put and then you put put them together in a book in book form, and you get paid again. Yeah, I mean, it used to exactly. be a good deal. Yeah. Being a writer used yeah. to be from like the best one of the better deals if you were decent at it to absolute abject misery overnight, and that overnight was basically when I, the night that I graduated college <laughs> in 2007. Yeah. I mean, you know, it had already been underway, but still. Um, so, yeah, magazines have always been pr- paramount to me. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we talked about the podcast being a, a mag. It's it's It has definitely, certain podcasts have overwhelmingly served that function. Um, certainly... The certainly the perfume nationalist serves that function. Certainly, Red Scare serves that function. Um, people have basically relied upon those two podcasts as as a form of education, and and it's not uh, and it's not crazy because I'm gonna Joseph Epstein, what, the last great living American essayist who also writes for commentary for many decades and gets paid very well. Um, he's one of the one of the ones that gets still gets paid a lot. Um, um, I also wrote for the new criterion, but they didn't pay much. Um, he was saying that he basically got his education in the fifties and the fifties, sixties from reading literary magazines. Like that was his education. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, like that was a big thing too with like, um, like with um, like even like lefty types, like like Mark Fisher would say this too. It was like my education came out of um, you know working class education came out of reading um, the New Music Express, the NME, where it's like, oh, the music reviews themselves are total compendiums for like you know you 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 go in and you have some guy refer- referencing like french theory next to like i don't know like whoever the fuck was playing like like the smiths through french theory um and that sounds pretentious now but it's like it actually is also too like a total it sets you on your path you know it it, it helps you grapple with bigger ideas it helps you you know acquire a certain amount of taste it helps you also get into a you know it helps you gra- yeah as you say grapple with ideas but also it help it, it it forces a certain debate into your blood it makes you have to you know it it's like the uh, one of the ultimate functions of a magazine going in any culturally vibrant era is as a vehicle for debate um especially the intellectual ones where you've got these great writers setting out their competing views and you've got them you know making cases for this why this book is good why it's shit why it's this why it's that like said kind of carving out their movements and really like you know very pugilistic in a way um i mean i i think most of the great magazine writers have this in their bloodstream and so it gives you a sense of combat it puts makes you combat ready which seems like it's antithetical to antithetical to you know being a open-hearted artist perhaps but i think it kind of mad i think you need to you know you need a little bit of you need to toughen up a little bit too if you want to be serious about things oh totally yeah i mean it's combative in a good way it's combative in a safe way it's um yeah no it, it rolls across the board i remember um also too <laughs> uh, i can't remember what side it was on i think it might have been like jezebel actually but it was um it was a review of um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the movie, but like solely from the perspective of um, how depressing it is <laughs> um, that Johnny Depp gets all of this money to take drugs and, um, and, you know, not hit deadlines and go on adventures and all this kind of stuff. And it was depressing because, like, no one could ever do that again, basically. It was like, oh, God, like, this movie is everything that magazine writing once used to be. And God fucking damn it, that we'll never have it again. That you can't, like, expense your mescaline. What a nightmare. The magical words on assignment. I'm on assignment for Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone, and I'm here to get fucking wasted. I mean, Brady Sinellis also talks about these massive figures that he would get for his assignments, uh, mm. you know, for, and, and, and shit. And uh, yeah, it's it's a, it yeah it's it's truly, it's truly this glamorous thing where it's like yeah no shit we got all, it made us all horny as teenagers who were getting uh, galvanized by the written word. What was your magazine? I mean, what was the? Did you have like a one that you kind of focused all of your energy on? Well. I was definitely influenced by Playboy, even though already at the time Playboy didn't really matter. But the one that w- was mattering at the time, I mean, Playboy was still publishing 
Norman Mailer and shit during these years. Um, old man Norman Mailer and old man John Updike. Um, but like the the, the Playboy, I was my ideal because it it was a it it looked at it. I saw it as a way of definitively and even Esquire. It was already cheap, and Esquire was already cheap by that point, you know. But it still had some, you know it it made me feel like if I could be in these magazines, I would be able to appeal to the common man, to the regular man, not just the intellectual, you know? So that's why I really aspired to those magazines. Um, I wanted to be, I wanted some like 40 year old corporate person to flip through and find my article and like tell his friend about, Oh, did you read this? This is so interesting and funny. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, wow. Cool. He must be so cool. This Armenian guy. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Well, let's call, let's be, let's invite him to our corporate retreat. Ho, 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 ho. Whatever, you know, fantasies like this. And, sure. but of the current, the one that was really good at the time, actually that peaked at the time was the Atlantic. Um, the Atlantic peaked in the years of editor, editorship under Michael Kelly and those several years following his death, he got, he got killed in Iraq when he was embedded there. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really good magazine. And so like, for me, that was like my, you know, like I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be in there, um, mm. really. And of course, there was the New Yorker, but that was more. The New Yorker was always more uh, based on its prestige than it was based on anything I actually loved about it, because well, it was, was pretty. Say, like that, that's the, the the New the New Yorker is like absolutely mine though, which is um, it's funny because I I totally agree with you that it was based on prestige, but like. I have been thinking about this more and more recently. And it's like, actually like my entire style and way of thinking about writing is entirely based in how individual writers, not like the kind of general staff tone um, thought through things. So like, I'm incredibly indebted to like Hilton Niles. I'm incredibly indebted to like Judith Thurman. Like they had one-offs among this kind of cohort who were so influential and that I think, you know, even in like the later Remnick years have um, a kernel of glamour that I don't think necessarily resides in someone like Gia Tolentino. I mean, the only, uh, the New York, if you were to probably, if you were to ask me which magazine do I want to appear in, if I could get one in the times when it mattered to me, I probably would have said New Yorker just for the sake of history Um, because the Atlantic has been, was pretty irrelevant for many decades. Once again is irrelevant. Uh, But, but, but the New Yorker, even if in its, even in its downtime, there was, there's always been a certain aura about the New Yorker just because of its, just because, right. I mean, I still want it. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, I would, I mean, obviously if they wanted me, I would, but like I've stopped, lusting after these things long ago because I've lost any respect th- that I once had for them. I don't have any respect for the work that they put out, the perspectives that they, uh, like they don't, they don't, they've lost my respect. All of them have lost my respect. They've um, lost, I'm, they've lost it to the I'm point that I, black yet. Huh? yeah, you're not, well, I'm glad cause you're younger, <laughs> but yeah. I've been, I'm blackpilled about any of those, but I'm also open to them. I'm also open to any of them. Re- reawakening well like but i mean the other part of it too though is like it you know, 
how do I put this? Um, I think, you know, um, they are vehicles and they are the dream factory, but maybe they're not currently running at full capacity or they're not running period. Um, but nonetheless though, like, I don't know, I feel like you could, I don't know. I, I have a, um, uh, a fantasy, perhaps a, a kind of naivete, um, about my own, how do I put this? I don't know, capacity for like putting things out there, you know, and I don't even necessarily mean like, um, like the hottest of hot takes, but like, you know, you can, I don't know. I think that people could do quite a bit in these um, big hulking monoliths. And there are people who I still respond to um, on that staff too, honestly. Um, who, such as? Know. Oh, I mean, like, you know, the people I just said, like Judith Thurman, Hilton Owls. Um, I'm trying to think who else is up there. I mean, is James um, Wood still putting or puttering around over there, isn't he? I think he is actually. Yeah, I mean, see, and I liked him at the New Republic, but then yeah. when he went over to the New Yorker, he got suddenly very boring for me. I mean, I like a lot of what he's done, so I'm not trying to like shit shit on him. It's just it, it feels like the New Yorker has cast a pall on every single person who's ever written for them in the last thirty years. Like Polya's Polya's descriptions of the New Yorker are you hit pretty hit pretty on target. <laughs> what did to me. she say? She said how, like, I mean, this is way back in the 90s. She was saying how it's like maybe early 2000s, whatever. She was saying how it's like a it's a it's a cultural void and how their language is just like this completely bore like the, their house language is just this completely boring cultural void that exists as if there's no such thing as the Internet. Um, and 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 basically it's like this, you know, out of touch uh, uh, monastery, basically. Uh, that oh, was how. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a critique that I don't think that's true so much anymore because like, it's so internet minded, um, you know, and I mean, probably internet minded to a fault actually. Um, but God damn, like, like, you know, I, I think that, um, I, I don't know. I, I like when a, when a, um, I like, I like a cult of personality. You know, I don't necessarily want it around a magazine because I want a magazine to be like a free bustling port of sexy ideas and sexy exchange. But, you know, I think that's a not an unfair critique. I think it's I think it's totally accurate, actually. It is 100 percent accurate. It's extremely yeah. boring and it's also hard to read. Um, the, the, the print is so like weirdly difficult on the eyes that I that it's like it's trying to turn me into some sort of weirdo every time I try to read it. I, I've. I feel like it's just, there is, yeah, it's got problems, but, you know, prestige is prestige. Um, I love you. Yeah. And I, but I have felt for the first time in the last few years, as things got really bad, a complete liberation from all these brand names uh, because the people who are working there and what they're doing, I mean, and, and, you know, the names you cite don't mean anything to me. I don't, the Hilton Owls doesn't mean much to me he's done enough to disgrace himself that I just don't care. But that doesn't mean that I can't see you. That doesn't mean that I can't see you writing for the New Yorker. I think you, you know, you're adjacent, you're there, you're in New York, you're a New Yorker. And so why not get, get yourself a little byline over there? You know, you could possibly yeah. start out as their podcast, as their podcast critic. 
<laughs> do you um well i mean i have a question though which is like do you think that because i think that what polia is responding to um like in the new yorker like it has like a very particular like you know, it's it's like um tone it's, like it's a tone high liberalism yeah. Well, not only like tone, but like also too, it's like it's the John Updike short story respectability. It's all that kind of, you know, it, it's monastic about being the epitome of like liberalism in a certain way. It's NPR on the on the page. Yeah. And there's no here's the thing. And this is where I, I and Polly are basically, tw- you know, siblings. Um, you know, there's no universe in which the new yorker would you know, forget all pol- forget anything related to politics or anything like that there's no universe in which the new yorker would ever harbor a voice like mine and that is something i have come to you know i have to come to accept because yeah not accepting it means that ultimately uh demeaning myself and being mm-hmm. endlessly depressed that I will never get noticed and I will never get this. I'll never get that. It will never, they will never ever uh, tolerate a voice like mine. I'm too loud for them. I'm too boisterous. I'm too everything. I'm just too everything for them. And that's a feeling I get around the entire NPR, the NPR sold set, the soul of the, like that's, I'm not the type who can do that. And I can, I can fake it. I mean, I can pass if I want to for a single episode or event or, you know, interview or whatever, but I will never be appreciated, never be like, I, I don't exist in that world. And yeah. so, you know, I don't see why I must accord it the, any kind of proper deference when all it has produced in the last several decades is crap and absolutely boring crap. And the entire culture has gone to pieces under its watch. Like these are, this is the power, this is the one cultural institution that has had the influence to maintain certain standards while let's say, let's blame capitalism or whatever and the internet on the general erosion of things. The New Yorker had the, had the prestige to, you know, stand athwart and they didn't take, they didn't, they, they, they were pussies. They were exactly the type of NPR pussies that I always thought they were in the face of a real threat to what they they actually care for. You know, the actual artistic, cultural. Um, what well, well, the old New Yorker would have cared for. Old, exactly. So I'm, I'm basing yeah. it on the old New Yorker. But yeah. I also happen to know that David Remnick, you know, he grew up in that shadow. He knows what that is he doesn't not know i mean yeah. i don't know him personally but i can t- I, you know he's not a complete it's he's not like it's not like he was it's not like he's a google guy you know what i mean no i mean he's a he's a philip roth boy basically exactly like, he, he even says as much and shame then on the philip roth family for letting it all go to shit under their watch all of it all yeah. of it which they had the power and i'm not blaming philip roth individually but you know what i mean like yeah. shame on them all so they that's why I've that's why they have lost their prestige to me. That's why they have lost their respect for me and that's why I am I have been liber, liberated from the FOMO of appearing in their pages. I would rather I'd be more honored in by by appearing in 
and in a on a uh, in in the auspices of something that has been around for a mere five years than in their pages. I'd be more honored in appearing on one of my favorite podcasts, on one of my, whatever you know, like Phil, if whatever it is, than in than in appearing in their pages because I know because I've had because I have danced with Prestige close enough to it uh, in the last five years with certain other big brands that I cannot name, but I've danced close enough to it to know in on what conditions it, it often operates. And if those are the conditions, it is not going to be, it is not going to be a celebration. Once you finally appear there, it will be fun for, I mean, you know, it'll be glam. It'll be glam for a minute, but if you're going to appear under certain conditions of just you know accidental or intentional conformity to the house rules it's 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 not it's not the coming out party that you think that you that you that you you think it would be yeah well i mean like i guess my kind of question then is like and i mean like you see efforts to kind of make this kind of publication um and i don't i mean i think it needs kind of both aspects um, I think it does need something like, how do I put this? Like, like, I guess like compact is kind of an experiment in doing this, right. Where it's like, it's trying to be a safe Harbor for, um, you know, unorthodox voices from wherever may have you. And I think like there is an attempt to kind of build up perhaps some kind of alternative media sphere where there are let's say, um, that isn't so bounded by like the kind of house rules of liberalism. Um, I just, I, I, yeah. No, I see the I attempts. How, I, I, I see I guess the my attempts. question though is like, like how, you know, the New Yorker has the advantage of being a publication that is, you know, it's pre um, mono, you know, it's monoculture. That's a monoculture publication that's lasted a hundred years. Um, I guess my question is, is like, is compact inherently doomed to an audience that self-identifies as based or can it ever grow a mass enough audience where um the sizzling opinions and the um competing you know a hot exchange of ideas becomes mass ever i don't know about I wish it were. I wish that would be a thing. I wish it would be too. I mean, I don't know enough. I know. I mean, I'm glad that they have our friend Adam working on their masthead mm-hmm. uh, as as a regular writer for them. I'm glad that they they're doing that. I'm, you know, they have other good writers on their on under their wing. To me, a lot of it depends on for any of these things, any of these things with real money behind them, which Compact obviously has. Um, I want to know if there is real talent seeking open-minded vision making these decisions or if they're going off of a certain uh you know a certain type of quota uh, you know could be it conservative uh be it like if they're if they're if they're looking for a certain type of you know i don't want to say his fucking name but i think he writes for them sometimes so that's a problem 
Um, Who is it? Oh, that, that you know the the, the Laku Karacha guy. I don't even want to say his name. Who? Pedro Gonzalez. Okay. Like if they're looking for shit like that, that's Karacha. Oh my god. That's he's just because he's just literally a he's a complete hack. I mean, it's nothing else. But there's nothing else other than the fact that he's a total yeah. hack who's who's masquerading in this. Um, He's he's basically bringing Mexican wrestling to discourse and masquerading now as a conservative who's more conservative than conservatives and blah blah blah. blah. Totally total bad 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 news bad news all around. Well, but the, yeah, but this is the, the I mean that was the point I was making about like you know is it actually a place and safe harbor for a not or unorthodox voices or is it kind of maxing out around people who self-identify as like contrarians or something you know which is yeah boring well contrarian is better than a lot of other things they can self-identify as i mean if they're self-identifying as populist or that's even worse because that's that's a that's just that's nothing that's a big nothing at least if there's contrarians stop clock is right twice a day you know still i mean but like the problem with that though is like it's still um i i don't think that that's a stable sorry a sustainable ground to grow a magazine on because like i think what all of these things that I love and that you love, um, I think it's almost more abstract than that. I think the debate is one part of the whole thing. Like I don't care about the rhetoric. I care about the sex appeal. And well, I, care I care about, about the, the substance. I care about the substance. I, I want to know the substance, but I care about the substance, you know, as it relates to sex and as it relates to right. Um, flash and zing, you know, and flash and zing are, um, less mappable than you know owning the libs or whatever the fuck yeah if it's about owning the libs it's dead in the water already um if it's you know i mean listen i'm my the case that i'm making for what i what i want to exist is the case is is contained within the however many dozens of hours of this podcast exist to this point which are um as you anybody can tell already are they i mean they cover they they cover all the ground that exists within my studio lot. You know, like I I go every I I can't. I'm sure there there's there's a lot of things I haven't plundered yet, but I haven't I have a lot of a lot that I haven't kind of included in the in the universe yet. It's an it's an ever expanding thing. But my endless case has been that it doesn't have to be this one programmatic thing yeah. like a career not my, not my career not my not my uh creations not any kind of magazine which i've i've done in college i mean founded a an alternative newspaper in college and also in high school um i'm not i'm not new to that like i it's 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 like the most to me it's the most obvious thing i've i've always believed whether it's the, the encompassing the comedic and the serious, the uh, uh, polemic and the literary, the everything, 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 like the personal and the the detached and and the historical and the you know up to the moment, the high, the low. I've always felt that a truly rounded and living, breathing cultural organ has to have it all. Like I want it all. I okay. want it all. I do not. I'm not going to settle for anything. I don't care if that means that I'll die alone. I want it all. And I want it all from any kind of public. And I think, you know, we, you know, not every single 
not every single podcast, not every single publication has to have it all. But if we're talking about a cultural renaissance, that cover that 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 involves a lot. And if you're cutting off any vital source of energy from your organ, the Renaissance organ, that organ is not going to be very impressive. And so it all really de- compact. It all depends on the open, you know, the obviously the the talent, the skill, but also the open mindedness and the passions of whoever is making decisions for it. Mm. Like, I, and I, I'm, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't met them. I maybe, maybe they, I may have, they may listen to to my shit for all I know because of Adam. I don't, I don't know. Um, I think what they, I have mutuals with a few of them. Is if Nina Powers is part of it, if Nina Powers part of it. Uh, I think we're mutuals. Um, but you know, I it to be remains to be seen. I guess with something like that. But we don't have to necessarily assume that a literal magazine is how it should be done today. I mean, any anyway, anything that's being done today mm-hmm. has to be multimedia. No, of to, course, it could be a, um, it, you know, it could be an installation at a museum even. Exactly. What if we could just <laughs> go into a museum at any particular hour of the day and it could be like a, a, Vie- a, a salon in Vienna in, mm-hmm. in 1893? I'm reading like, a book about Colette right now, and like the 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 salons of like Fond de Siècle France, and it's like, God damn, it sounds like so hot and sexy. Yeah. Or it's like, yeah. Oh, like, like the literal and Vienna, um, and Vienna, Vienna, or like any of these fucking places, right? Any I mean, of these like, fucking like, places. Oh God, the 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 the, the sex and the flash, the zing, the, the idea zip. that. There are people sitting on those little round tables and sipping coffee and literally scribbling. And there's magazines littered everywhere. And there's like so many magazines and they're all like reading these magazines and they're like responding to them in real time. And they're literally scribbling their aphorisms at those tables. And they're in this constant, constant little like interaction with each other, trying to one up each other viciously fuck each other's wives and the whole thing it boggles the senses it just it leaves us it leaves me in a state of complete complete like I mean, nullity i mean like it's it, it, it was it really that great it must have been right yeah yeah no i mean i yeah i yeah i i also think too about um fuck um You know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because um, I just pitched. I don't know. I'm I'm not going to say, but like, um, I have been thinking a lot recently about like the tensions that kind of went into initial mass media. Um, so, like, when we think about like Vogue, like Vogue is kind of the perfect example. Um, Vogue becomes a good magazine. Um, in part because of its editors, but then also too, like you are also getting for the first time genuine cultural difference in the form of like all of these Jews who are fleeing the Nazis who like come to this magazine. So you have like this genuine cultural dynamism that's that's popping off between like waspy women who don't work um, and who need something to do during the day and these like hard scrabble like Jewish photographers, basically. Um, 
and also to like faggots as well. Like, like, like it's, it's faggots, Jewish photographers and like American princesses basically. And, you know, it produces really, really fantastic results. Um, and if you look at like back at the old ones too, it's like crazy surrealist and stuff too. Like it's, it's kind of off the charts, like what people were able to imagine. I kind of wonder almost too, like if, um this kind of self-segregating thing you know like like a genuine lack of diversity kind of exists in i think quite a bit of the major cultural institutions so um you know i want people bouncing off each other i do want a complex dynamism that will like give me something like i haven't seen before you know it can happen if you try I think that I think that the point, uh, the to me the the call has been the voice that I've heard in the wilderness of this plague has been no more excuses, uh, institutional excuses have been removed. Institutional excuses meaning that you have to be noticed. Yeah. By the New Yorker, yeah. by Netflix, by whoever the fuck, uh, in order to have any kind of impact on the culture and any kind of get make any kind of mark. These are the these are this is kind of what how we've lived until the year 2020. No matter how anything, what, no matter what, like it's always been you need to this is the path, you need to get you need to get noticed by this, you need to get your deal with A24, you need to da 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 whatever your particular thing is. Um, and if there, there is no, I mean, and it, and there's no, it's not about, it's not about setting all of these things aflame. I think that, I think that the low, and I think that all these things should be, all of these institutions, even in their ruins should be, you know, we always keep a line of like, there should be open communications with them and there should be the opportunity that give them a chance to 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 revive themselves by by looking up to what you're doing you know whoever you are um but i don't think we don't have that that excuse is lifted because they just don't matter they just don't matter anymore the people to for whom they do matter are dying and even for them they matter little and it's a whole new world and Either you're going to make your mark in this whole new world starting now, or you're going to be drifting on a sea of excuses forever, as most people always in any time have done. So I, th I think there are enough signs that have emerged to indicate that there is a, that efforts will be rewarded if they are pursued with total seriousness and total passion and total um commitment and the emphasis is on um the eternal diana ross slogan which is to reach out and touch somebody exactly we reach out and touch somebody, somebody of can. legal age what <laughs> how did the song go because there's all kinds of rumors now about diana ross and michael jackson that oh that would defy the or or maybe justify her song to the fullest extent She's one of my divas, though, you know. Sure, um, she's shit. She, she has that sweet, that voice, you know. It's just like, 
She's a voice of like peaches. I mean, but she's also, I mean, like, you know, she's she's got the grandeur as well, right? She's Miss Ross. She's the she boss. Is. She is the Ross. She is the boss. She is a pain in the ass. Because that's that's the di- that's what a diva is. A diva is a pain in the ass, but it's a pain that is worth it. She's undeniable. You can't deny a diva. What, you're gonna you, deny divide, a diva? you cannot divide. You cannot deny Miss Ross. If she says that she will not talk today because she has the performance at 9 p.m. and she's preserving her voice, so she's only going to write little stupid notes to you instead of even whispering something that'll save you five minutes, mm. you're going to have to follow that instruction. Yeah. And if and if she and if you think when she's writing that note that well, Miss Ross, actually for the last thirty years or so, you've barely been singing at all. All you do is talk your songs out. You don't really sing them out, do you, Miss Ross anymore? She, you have to keep that thought to yourself. I love Mariah Carey for this reason too. Actually, you love her. I don't for for, for, for I mean like latter day Mariah Carey in particular for like this reason of like <laughs> um, of being a massive bitch. But like also just being like, she's uh, dreamed off her dreams and now she could just be psychotic basically. Yeah. It's, 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 it's good to be a woman. Sometimes you can really just let it rip. You could just let it rip. Yeah. If you've reached a certain level of power, I mean, you'd be like, you can just be crazy. And 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 everyone will bow down before your insanity. And I think that's all. I think that's what all artists are aspire to. Ultimately, we're all kind of, um, we're all on this hunt to have our insanity dignified, at minimum glorified, at maximum, and coddled, regardless, <laughs> and rewarded. Mark like, Morrissey is the Diana Ross of faggots. <laughs> they have the same hair, right? I don't I haven't seen his hair lately, <laughs> but. I think it's, I think it's, I think lately you could say the same of Kanye, by the way, but. Um. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, he, you know what? I think you really could make the argument like he is the last diva. Yeah. I mean, unless there's a young, well, unless like, I don't know what his age measures up to whoever's age, blah, blah, blah. But he is a total fucking diva. I mean, I mean who, who else? He out diva his wife. Like, oh, absolutely. Well, because Kim doesn't have a personality. She's not a diva. She she she's actually not a diva. She's just she's actually a she's a like she's the yeah she's the studio boss. She's not the yeah. diva. She's the studio boss, and so the diva basically like it was the war. It, it it couldn't it didn't last the relationship between the the studio and and uh, Kanye West. Yeah, he's a fucking he's insane and. You know, there comes a point where I think everybody just questions whether it's worth the trouble with his insanity. But he is, he's, he, he, we still have, we, here's, here he is. He's still there. <laughs> like, I'm not going to fucking parse his latest, uh, uh, Kenta hat, uh, uh, you know, Hotep ass, uh, theories about Judaism. <laughs> oh, God. I don't, I, I can't. I cannot. I'm not, nope, I'm not interested. Nope, nope, I'm like, nope. I'm avoiding all people who are talking about it. Even I'm not even. So my friend sends me, "Hey, did you see Kanye on Tucker?" I'm like, "I no, I can't. I just can't. I'm done. I'm done for a while. Like I'm, I've had enough. <laughs> I think we've all had enough for now. Like there's nothing that's gonna. There's nothing left to charm me in these in this particular language of his. Like I don't need it. Yeah, 
yeah. I'm good <laughs> for now. I'm good. It's fine. I don't. I don't need him anymore. No, it's, it's good. Cool. You know, maybe somewhere down the road, we'll be we'll we'll pull over at an inn, and it's going to be Sunday, and it's going to be closed. It's going to say closed because it's closed on Sunday, uh, just like Chick Fil A, but. Suddenly we're going to hear the knob turn and and Kanye's going to open it and say, ah, gotcha. Actually, I'm open on Sunday now, bitches. I'm back open on Sunday now. And we'll have a Kanye revival. I'm not ruling it out. Anything I'm, happen? I'm, 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 you know, give me some time. It could happen. It could happen down the road. Way yeah. further on up the road. As Bobby Blue Bland would sing. Um... I hope that our attempt at forging our own journey into the apocalypse hole that is the Whitney Biennial has succeeded. And there's only one way to find out. And that is to see that if by the sheer magic of our own, of our intense concentration and, uh, um, focus and vision we can close our eyes real tight and see if perhaps we cannot through pure magic unlock a portion of that experience that has supposedly been lost forever to the audio netherworld a portion, perhaps the portion, if we if we really close our eyes, the portion that followed our exit from the museum, followed even our tour of the beautiful park by the Hudson, where I started to arrive at the real reason for having invited you on this adventure, which was to explore not the offerings of the biennial, which I didn't expect to be much more than crap, and neither did you, but for a deeper, deeper adventure, deeper journey, a destination that is not the one, the destination beyond the visible, a destination of how Harry Tafoya's life was saved by art and whether that is still a possible thing anymore for a life to be saved by art, and why you, as a man of 20, in your mid-20s, find yourself in this position of being an, a, an appreci- a professional appreciator of what is seldom appreciated anymore, and is seldom worthy of appreciation anymore in its contemporary form. And so I'm hoping that if we just fucking close our eyes together and count to 10 silently in our heads uh from the moment i say count we can somehow unlock some element of that lived live experience where we walk to a cafe and unpack how you got into this whole art business and why you intend to stay there for life count
It's an illusion of permanence. Your, I think, oh, you have your, um, your cigars. Yeah. Cigarillos. I need it. I would like to smoke one right now, but they probably won't let us do it. Just be outside. Yeah. So <laughs> you arrived at. You had a. You, you had a bad year. You found companionship in the works of these artists? I think I've always had a drift toward wanting to understand art and it meaning quite a lot to me. Um, whether that be like for movies, whether that be for like TV shows and books and stuff. Um, but I think that year, that bad year that I had, kind of clarified like, oh fuck, I have to do it. And this is a wrap on the free version for the final 40 minutes of the magically excavated Whitney Biennial episode where Harry and I rescue art from itself. Subscribe on patreon.com slash filthy Armenian. And I am very grateful to you for listening this year. This is the one-year anniversary of Filthy Armenian Adventures, we have gone to places I never suspected we would go, and I am very excited about where we're headed. So, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of it. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Enjoy the world. Put a smile on your face. Wipe it off. Have it grow organically back. And uh, I hope I see you behind the $5 paywall. Mwah.